0: G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber and I'm TJ Steadman and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Last week we talked about Erad and I had thought that we were going to keep reading through this genealogy here in Genesis 4 and the line of Cain but last week told me that we're not reading a genealogy anymore so uh, i'm not really sure what we're doing this week tim yeah that's right i did say that didn't i time to change the subject let's talk about making babies uh you you do realize that we brought up the topic of how babies are made like two weeks in a row already right i I hope this isn't going to get anatomical i don't want us to get cancelled We've got to maintain a clean rating, you know. There are kids listening to this show.
1: Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, you know, settle down. I just thought I'd mention it because we're getting into a very important verse in our reading of Genesis 4. This is going to be one of the foundational texts that provides the inspiration for the Book of Enoch. And, yes, I did say it that way just to upset people. Of course, I really mean that in the same way that, I mean, you were inspired to write your shopping list.
0: You're saying that the Enochic author ran out of carrots and that made him realise that he needed to sit down and write an apocalyptic masterpiece in five parts and 108 chapters?
1: Uh, No, I'm saying that my use of the word inspired doesn't mean that I think Enoch should have been in the canon because I don't. I just like triggering folks with that word. Anyway, we're getting into a part of Genesis 4 that maintains the form of a genealogy, but it's actually doing something very different, which, again, is why I want to talk about making
0: babies. Okay, here we go.
1: Okay, so stay with me here as we do a little Hebrew and work our way from Adam down Cain's genealogy. Genesis four, verse one. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore, that word is Yalad, Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore or Yalad, his brother Abel. When Eve gives birth to her sons, we see the use of the verb for giving birth, which in its most basic form is Yalad. And we see that it comes after the intimate sexual relations between the man and his wife, after she conceives and is pregnant, and then she gives birth. The next birth we see happens in verse 17, which we were looking at in our most recent episodes of the show. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore, again, that's Yalad, Enoch. And you might recall me making a point of how ordinary this birth narrative is in that we have the sexual relations, conception, pregnancy and birth by the woman, yada, yada, yada. So our next verse, which follows in verse 18, is a little different, which indicates that we're about to see a transition into a different kind of story. Because when Irad comes on the scene, we transition from the active role of the woman in conception and pregnancy and birth into a story that focuses on the passive nature of the father. And that should be a warning because we've already seen what happens in chapters three and four when fathers are passive, bad things are coming. So when it comes to Irad, we hear the author telling us that he was born to his father. To Enoch was born Irad. The man in the Garden of Eden was passive when his wife took the forbidden fruit. He was passive again when his eldest son killed his younger brother. I guess you could say that was implied by his accent, uh, by his absence. Now, Enoch has become passive and the result is his son, Erad, whose name, as we mentioned last week, means city of dominion. And of course, whenever men become passive, the result is the rise of violence and tyranny. So along comes the great city, the first of many that will be known as Babylon, and the first that will represent the enemy of Jerusalem in the sixth century BC. It was the practice of ancient mesopotamians to refer to the dominant city in the region as babylon we have a tendency to think that babylon was just a single place that never changes much like most other city names you come across but babylon is different because it's the name of the seat of power in mesopotamia which over time changed from one location to another and here in genesis 4 there is no allusion to the name of babylon in association with eridu but we're going to see it when we get to genesis 11 in spite of the fact that the name eridu does not appear in the text when we get there, we'll see Eridu described rather than named, because there are no names in the story of the city and the tower whose top reaches up to heaven. Let's read our text for today, which is Genesis 4, verse 18. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Matushael, and Matushael fathered Lamech, or Lemech. Always get that wrong. It's Lamech. So we have talked already about the three occasions in which a person has been born prior to the birth of Irad, And even though his birth is described in a passive sense, it's still a perfectly acceptable way to speak of the birth of a child. We hear all the time that a person was born to their parents. That's nothing unusual. But as I said, this trend toward passivity is indicative of trouble. And now, having seen the pattern established by the women in the bringing forth of their seed, we confronted with an abomination the bible tells us hundreds and hundreds of times that a child was born or that a woman gave birth but we're never told that a man has given birth until now just here in this single verse and never repeated again in scripture we have not one but three occasions where a man is said to give birth like a woman who brings forth from her womb
0: wait a minute what are we talking about is this some kind of weird transgender thing or something how can you have men giving birth or is this just people trying to be inclusive and men acting like they're participating in this with the women? You know how you get blokes saying stuff like, we're pregnant and all that kind of thing. Is that what's going on here? That is absolutely
1: not what's going on here, but there definitely is something weird going on. We're going to get to the bottom of it while we take a look at the son of Irad, And this guy has one of those memorable, lovable names that I'm sure is top of your baby naming list. They call him Mahuyael. This name is difficult to trace because once again we have a situation where the biblical author has taken an existing name and modified it to make a point this name exists only in this particular verse of the bible and nowhere else in the world but we can trace elements in the name back to their ancient west semitic roots at its base level the core of this name means something like divine life or enlivened by god there's a similar element in this name to that which we find in his maternal ancestor eve So this name, if there is indeed a historical person behind it, is probably following a similar path to those we have seen previously in the line of Cain. We saw a similar theme in the name of Enoch with this intense desire to ascend toward the divine. We also find in this name, an element that could be translated as something like ecstatic or visionary, which I think we should be thinking of in terms of prophecy. Although that particular feature does not appear in known ancient Near Eastern names, this may be an exceptional case or a deliberate play on words by the author. And if so, it carries the connotation of divination, either empowered by the deity or in pursuit of divine power. But our biblical author is, of course, not content to leave this name unmolested when there is an opportunity to make a point. This name has been modified, and in the form that we have it, the most likely understanding of this name is struck by God or erased by God or something like that. The point being made is that God suddenly and abruptly causes the memory of this person to vanish. And, of course, he's going to vanish because he's only in this text for the briefest of moments, and all that we have between the first mention of his name and the last is the single word, and.
0: It's like that thing they say about, Tombstones, you know how on a tombstone they have the year that someone was born and the year that they died? And people say that all the life they had is the dash between the beginning and the end. It's not much.
1: And that was our new segment, Deep Thoughts, with Chris Bather. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Get your bathers on. We're going in deep. What do you reckon? You like that? Well uh, done. Bye, Chris. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> our lives are fleeting Indeed, and whatever we accomplish in our lives doesn't come with us unless it builds the kingdom of God. And that's exactly why this man, Mehuyael, disappears forever after a brief moment in the sun. Everything that his father strove to build will come to nothing. Every effort made by his grandfather to reach the heights of the gods has failed. Even his great grandfather, the infamous murderer, has disappeared from the narrative. One by one, the members of the line of Cain are perishing. But how can the biblical author say this as he stands in the streets of the mighty city of Babylon under the tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar? How can he stand before the mighty Ishtar Gate and behold the strength and the majesty and the beauty of this incredible city with its grand fortifications gleaming like a lapis lazuli jewel in the desert? And this whole time he's railing against the powers of Babylon and the boast of its religious elite. Well, I'm going to tell you how, and it's not going to be a popular answer because the silence in the academic world around biblical prophecy and apocalypticism is deafening. This is apocalypticism in the 6th century BC. Babylon will fall, and everything that has come from it is destined to disappear along with it. The legacy of Eridu will soon disappear.
0: But what is the legacy of Eridu? What are we talking about specifically? And you still haven't told us what's going on with this whole men giving birth thing. How does that tie in?
1: good questions all and all shall be revealed let's talk about henry ford who was henry ford born july 30 1863 wayne county michigan usa died april 7 1947 dearborn michigan american industrialist who revolutionized factory production with his assembly line methods henry ford was an inventor and business magnate and the founder of ford motor company he invented several vehicles most famously the model t automobile and changed the auto industry forever by introducing the moving assembly line to car production. His industrial innovations were so economically impactful that the term Fordism came to refer to the mass production and consumption that they enabled, which then more broadly characterised the pace and nature of the post-war era's capitalist economy. Celebrated as both a technological genius and a folk hero, Ford was the creative force behind an industry of unprecedented size and wealth that in only a few decades permanently changed the economic and social character of the United States. When young ford left his father's farm in 1879 for detroit only two out of eight americans lived in cities when he died at age 83 the proportion was five out of eight once ford realized the tremendous part he and his model t automobile had played in bringing about this change he wanted nothing more than to reverse it or at least to recapture the rural values of his boyhood
0: yeah Okay, wait a minute, why on earth are we talking about Henry Ford? I know you love your cars, Tim, but this is a Bible podcast. I mean, I can understand that you're probably misdriving that big black V8 Falcon that you had. But we were in the middle of talking about a genealogy in Genesis 4. Why are we suddenly in modern USA? I'm very confused.
1: 500 horsepower, Chris. Leather seats and everything. All gone. I'm not crying. You're crying. Anyway, the reason we're talking about Henry Ford has nothing to do with my own love for fast cars. It's the fact that he was renowned for something so much that he was given a special name by those who spoke about him. They called him the father of the automobile.
0: He didn't invent the first cars, though, did he?
1: No, that honor normally goes to Carl Benz. But it was Henry Ford who revolutionized the production of the automobile in such a manner that everyday people could afford one. And on the face of it, that would seem like a great achievement and one that He was widely hailed for as an outstanding success and a brilliant example of capitalism at work. They sold so fast that legend has it Ford had to resort to using a special quick drying paint, which was only available in black. So the popular saying became you can have any colour you want as long as it's black. Mine was black. But you might have noticed something a little bit odd in the biography that I was just reading, and that is the fact that Henry Ford came to regret the success of his invention. His success as the father of the automobile was overshadowed by the rapid urbanization of America as a result of the increased ease of transport that came about as a result of his affordable automobiles. Henry Ford eventually realized that his legacy was one of depopulating rural America and overcrowding the cities. And we've had a bit to say about the cities as we've gone through Genesis 4, especially last episode when we spoke about Eridu. And just like Henry Ford, the descendants of Cain became known for introducing technologies and ways of living that increased urbanization, placing great strain on rural farming communities to support the city dwellers. Irad, the city of Eridu, was the father of all that will be struck down by God and remembered no more. That is the message of this text. He's not the father of a man. He's the father of a civilization, a culture, a way of living and a world system that God is going to bring to nothing.
0: So he's kind of the opposite of Orlando Carusian then. What? You know, Lando's not a system, he's a man.
1: Ah, of course, Lando Carusian. I see you holding a figurine there. Very good. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. Eridu is not a man, he's a city. It's, it's about everything that comes from the city. It's about the way of life that depends on the oppression of the poor and the exploitation of the weak. It's about a system of religion that creates wealth for the elite and power for the tyrant. It's about the evil deeds done in the darkness while men create artificial light to deny the poor of rest. And God is telling us that all of it is going to be destroyed without trace or memory. That is the legacy of Eridu and that is Mahuyael. That's no moon, it's a space station. He's not a man, he's a system. And God is going to blow him to bits, just like hitting a womp with my T16 back home.
0: Are you regressing into your childhood, Tim? I, I feel like this is bringing up repressed trauma. This is about the car again, isn't it? Let's just change the subject. I don't want to talk about things that are temporary or fleeting in nature anymore. <laughs> okay, that wasn't awkward at all. Uh, let's have some Q&A then. You did this to yourself, Tim. I didn't bring up Henry Ford. Why didn't you talk about Thomas Edison or something like
1: that? 500 horsepower. I want to hear your giant questions you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com Send me an email at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to
0: all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Okay, let's move on to a question. Vernon from the Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook asked If the sons of God did at once cohabited with the daughters of men what is to prevent their doing it again now?
1: You see, Chris? You see? It's all we think about. Sex, 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 all the time. And you thought we were just going to move past all that once we got started on this episode.
0: Well, what can I say? We're giving people what they want. And they
1: want sex. They sure do. Although in this case, I think we're all hoping that the people do not get the sex. Because if that thing happened again, the Nephilim would come back. And that's bad news for everyone.
0: So it's a fair question then, isn't it? Why doesn't it happen again? If it happened once, why not? Well, that's what we're going to find out. I
1: did actually write about this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, which you can get on Amazon, but I suppose we have the time to talk about it briefly.
0: Well, you could just refer people to your book.
1: I could, but then I chose to answer this question after it was raised in a Facebook discussion group, so I'm hardly going to stick my hand up and say, oh, I'll answer that, just listen to my podcast, and then weeks later, after 30-odd minutes of waffling on about ancient Babylon and Henry Ford and Star Wars, just come to the end and go, hey, you should buy my book.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Okay, so we know the old story from Genesis 6 about how the sons of God took human wives and their offspring were the Nephilim. And for anyone familiar with this worldview, we don't really need to unpack all the details about how that was possible and all that sort of thing. We understand that a reading of Genesis 6 that can account for the interaction of divine beings with human women has been the prevailing understanding of that text from the day it was written through most of our history. So the question is quite legitimate then. If we don't see any reason why it couldn't happen in the first place, then why not a second time or a third or many more times? And I guess the first thing to consider is what are the implications of committing that act as far as a divine being is concerned for the sons of God who participated in this rebellion? What were the consequences? The act of taking on embodiment for the purpose of procreation didn't come without a cost. Look at what Jude had to say about it in his letter. And uh, this is uh, from Jude verses six to seven and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, as Jude understands that these angels changed their form and abandoned the glory they had in their natural state so they could take on flesh and live as humans in the sense that they would experience embodiment. We have no textual sources that would indicate that the reverse is possible. So it would appear that this transformation can only be done once. That means for the divine beings that gave in to the temptation presented by the daughters of men, this would become for them a death sentence. Although their spirits were created to be non-embodied by nature and thus immortal, the fact that they had become tethered to the flesh meant that they would never be restored to their former glory because the flesh is mortal.
0: But how could they possibly have been tricked into doing that? Didn't they realise that they would have become mortal and they would eventually
1: die? Yeah, that's true, but I think they must have realized that the ability to procreate and have children would mean that they obtained a lasting legacy through the establishment of a family line that would continue through the ages. Of course, that didn't work out for them. One observation that we can make about divine beings after the Genesis 6 event is that those rebellious sons of God are never spoken of as having a physical form ever again. I'm talking about the fallen ones here, not the ones that still follow God. So whatever happened to them, it seems that their ability to take on human form in the flesh has been lost permanently. Having said that, these entities still have powers that we cannot comprehend and the ability to appear to be human may still be within their grasp. One thing that the Enochian tradition has made clear is that the fallen sons of God, or Watchers as they are called in that literature, suffer great loss as a result of what they had done because the wives that they so desperately desired would eventually die and so would their children, the Nephilim. And the watchers would simply have to sit back and watch. Not only that, but the biblical tradition and the Enochian tradition both hold that the future judgment of the fallen sons of God would not be merciful. The terrible punishment of the gods would be incomprehensible. So if that's not an incentive for the faithful sons of God to stay in line, I don't know what is. Now, Since I quoted Jude earlier and the mention was made of Sodom and Gomorrah, I should probably say that I don't think that particular story is one of angel-human interactions of a sexual kind, like what we saw earlier in Genesis. I think that when Jude uses that story as an example, he's doing so on the basis of drawing comparison with the people that his letter actually speaks about. He's not trying to say that there was a second angelic incursion. And in keeping with the Enochian tradition that Jude is familiar with, we also have Peter and his letters. Peter is quite adamant that the events of Genesis 6 could only have happened at one single time in history and never again. Hence, he writes, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. There you go. I had to get a little bit of King Jimmy in there somewhere. But uh, you've got to notice how frequently he uses temporal language in this passage to talk about how this only happened at one time. Once you see it there, it really stands out.
0: So we understand that there were reasons why the sons of God would not do this thing again. We understand from scripture that at least by the time the apostle Peter wrote, it hadn't ever happened again. But as Vernon asked, what actually prevents this from happening again
1: good point i'm going to have to draw together a number of threads to weave a tapestry of ideas together into a coherent whole because although we don't get this stated explicitly in chapter and verse the bible can tell us what happened obviously saint peter had reasons to be so confident so we'll have a look at what he had to say and see if we can identify anything second peter 2 4 for if god did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And uh, I'm going to quote briefly from my book, Answers to Giant Questions, on this. First estate in Jude 6, we were reading that earlier, uh, the Greek arche is the position and title of sons of God. The, their own habitation is the Greek oiketerion, meaning literally the body as the dwelling place of the spirit in this context it refers to the angelic form as created by god and the idea created is one of being clothed with angelic glory the angels therefore essentially disrobed or undressed from their former glorious state in order to cohabit with women that word oikaterion appears in only one other place in scripture where the meaning is the same but the roles are reversed this time it's the human believer Longing to have the glorified form of the angelic, a thing that awaits all those who will be with Christ at his coming. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, that is Oikotarion, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the spirit. So these two instances of the term oikotarion tell us that it refers to the kind of body that each type of being is given, whether human or angelic. It also calls that body a dwelling or temple, indicating that it is the place from which we are meant to represent and therefore glorify the Lord. Both angels and humans share this responsibility in their respective spheres of influence. In the context of glorification and power, we learn something important concerning the nature of the chains using God's judgment of these beings, as uh, referred to by Peter and Jude. Darkness is a direct contrast to glory, which is usually described in terms of brightness or radiance. Therefore, the chains are not meant to imply physical restraint like chains of steel. But instead, the concept is one of the limitation of manifest glory. God has restrained the ability of the fallen angels to exercise their full capacities. This is why Peter stresses so forcefully the idea that the angelic incursion occurred only once. God's judgment on his rebellious sons prevented a repeat performance. But where do we see this in the Hebrew Bible? On what basis could Second Temple period authors reach this conclusion? For that, we'll consult Ezekiel chapter 31. I've talked about this a few times on the podcast and I've read extensively about it in the book. What we see here in Ezekiel 31 is Ezekiel's prophecy against Pharaoh and the great empire of Egypt. This comes about 20 years after the Assyrian Empire was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar II. So it was fresh in the minds of the world that even a great world power can fall. But the prophet had a far greater fall in mind from much further back in history, the fall of Assyria's greatest ruler, Nimrod,
0: at Babel. So wait a minute, are we talking about recent history or ancient history here?
1: Yes. The fall of Babel was especially significant with relation to Egypt, because the powers that made Egypt so great and successful had their origins in the events of Genesis 11. The very same catastrophe that destroyed the pride of Nimrod actually enabled Egypt to flourish. So the overarching message here is that God causes these empires to rise and fall, and therefore Egypt shouldn't feel smug and secure in their place. This served as a warning to the Judeans as well, because at the time they were looking to Egypt for help against Nebuchadnezzar, who in a matter of only weeks would destroy Jerusalem. After Ezekiel draws the comparison between Pharaoh and Nimrod, known here in this passage as the Assyrian, and that's not unique to Ezekiel, by the way, because the prophet Micah does the same thing. He begins to describe the fall of the powers in the unseen world that were behind nimrod's rise to world domination and we can pick that up because ezekiel starts using the language of eden and talking about the trees in the garden just the way that we've been talking about that here on this podcast particularly back in season two this chapter is full of all kinds of references to ancient near eastern cosmology with regard to things like water from the deep and the cosmic mountain motif and the idea of the world tree and that sort of thing basically it's all designed to say that the power that enabled Nimrod to become a world ruler was the influence of divine beings from the abyss. So my apologies if this is a little brief and requires a bit more unpacking, but I'm not about to go and repeat everything I've said on the podcast and everything i wrote in my book. If this little rundown doesn't quite make sense, I would suggest getting into some of my other material. But anyway, that's the background that Ezekiel sets out to explain what happened when the small g gods of the nations were dispersed from Babel over the face of the world. That event was the catalyst for the origin of the Rephaim, who were, of course, the post-flood giants that dominated the geopolitical landscape of the world for thousands of years after that. And it was the beginning of the end for the rebellious sons of God, even if it was the driving force that made Egypt a world power. Here's where it gets interesting. The ability of these small-g gods to personally indwell deified kings and produce giant offspring appears to have been only possible during the lifetime of Nimrod, because as soon as he dies, it all stops. Listen to what Ezekiel has to say about this in chapter 31 from verse 14 on. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. For they are all given over to death, to the world below among the children of men with those who go down to the pit thus says the lord god on the day the cedar went down to sheol i caused mourning i closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers and many waters were stopped i clothed lebanon in gloom for it and all the trees of the field fainted because of it i made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when i cast it down to sheol with those who go down to the pit And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. In other translations, you'll have grieved there, grieved in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it to those who are slain by the sword. Yes, those who wear its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude declares the Lord God. Okay. So what all this tells us is that the rebellious sons of God, remembering that they lost their embodiment at the flood, no longer have the capability of empowering human rulers with divine power from the underworld. As I would argue was the case with Nimrod, not only that, but their power to influence the world is limited to indirect influence through human rulers who serve as a proxy. I realize I've said all this without actually explaining the mechanism by which the Nephilim were able to make a reappearance through Nimrod after the flood and at the Tower of Babel event. And I did that because it's beside the point of the question and would require a lot more time to unpack, which I can't really do here on the podcast until we actually get to Genesis 10 and 11. In the meantime, if you want to know more about that, I would suggest picking up a copy of my book. Go to giantanswers.com and follow the links to Amazon where you can grab yourself a copy in paperback or Kindle. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. Stick around as we continue to smash through this anti-genealogy here in Genesis 4. And, of course, we will be taking more of your giant questions as usual. Don't forget to check out our friends at the Raven Creek Social Club, ravencreeksc.com, and also check out our mates at thedigbiblepodcast.com. Uh, I'm looking at getting some guests on the show next year, and I'm not talking about the typical Genesis six celebrity circuit that most of our listeners would be familiar with already. I'm looking at getting together a bunch of people who are actually invested deeply in exploring the Bible and sharing with you some of the deeper stuff that scriptures have for us all. So that'll be good. We haven't had guests on the show since our second season. I did enjoy that, but I found as we were getting deeper and deeper into our material in Genesis, I was just enjoying myself far too much to worry about interrupting our program. Well, I think once we get to the end of Genesis 4, it'll be time to take a step back for a little moment, take stock of what we've seen so far and regroup before we continue in Genesis 5, uh, a little while away yet. So there's plenty of time to prepare for that. And if you're listening to this and you'd be interested in making an appearance on the show, drop me a line. We'll talk about it. We're going to take a little break over the Christmas New Year period, so there won't be any more episodes from us until we get into the New Year. Then we'll just pick up where we left off here and carry on through the rest of Season 4 of the podcast. So, yeah, we'll be back and better than ever, or at least the same as usual, in 2023, digging deep into the Bible, answering your giant questions and making you groan with lame Australian jokes.
0: Indeed we will. So it's a Merry Christmas from us, and we wish you all a safe and happy uh, festive season. May God bless you all and keep you safe into the new year. Thank you for your support and all your questions uh, throughout 2022, and we look forward to having you join us in 2023 on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found content in answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful of course this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops that's all we have time for today we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast
1: thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken at graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Joint Questions by DJ Stepan, on on man, and Paperback. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com or joinancers.com for more. Read the box and have us on the socials, but subscribe to the the show. Send us all your questions. This we'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless. Brief interlude. We are back.
0: And I did go into the loo. I don't it's have good. any eggnog this week. I was very close to getting one, but I did.
1: Yeah, do
0: They expect me to pronounce that. Uh, the Y instead of a J. He didn't invent the first. The first uh, fast, Fast and Furious. He didn't invent Fast and Furious, they did. He that honour goes to Mister and Mrs. Diesel. Never mind.
1: You're supposed to say that, and but, that's uh,
0: okay. You're right on a roll.
1: You know what? Uh, I heard.
0: From... Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> I, I heard. I'm from... Just happened to have this handy. Yes. Um, handy, huh? But today, uh, someone contacted me said they've just started
1: listening to the podcast and they love it. They, oh, cool. ordered, um, they They bought a copy of the book on Kindle and started reading it. They loved it so much, they went out and, and purchased four copies in paperback to give to their friends.
0: Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, that's what you want to hear. <laughs> Yeah. Well, oh, there's there's nothing like it, you know. Ah, no, it's good, man. You've you've mm. done well. You've put a lot of research into it, and yeah, that's awesome. I love to hear those stories.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I was yeah quite encouraged with that, and also got some feedback from people who are sharing the podcast with their families as well. And they just they just all listen to it together.
0: Wow.
1: Uh, so that's awesome. Like even the kids. So. Wow. Yeah. Really Interesting. cool.
0: Oh, did you watch the new Indiana Jones trailer?
1: Ah, uh, yes, I saw that trailer. I'm looks... not really sure what to make of it.
0: Uh, I'm excited. It looks pretty awesome. It's probably to be better than the last one.
1: Yeah, the um, the Crystal Skull one was interesting. Like, I wasn't sure what to make of it at first because you know it's been it had been such a long time since the last Indiana Jones movie. Mm. And, you know, it didn't sort of have that flavor of sort of, you know, we're tracking down biblical relics and that sort of thing, which was. Yeah, other true. Other movies, well, particularly um, Raiders. One and three. And, uh, yeah, Last Crusade. Um, but after I got over that <laughs> and, and rewatched it, I thought, well actually like if if i take off my i'm a bible believing christian glasses when i think about raiders of the lost ark mm. and watch it as a person who doesn't know what's in the box um then the end of that movie really does escalate like crazy <laughs> and you know face meltingly so and yes so when I thought about that in relation to watching the the Crystal Skull movie, then the bit at the end with the the, the UFO and all that mm. um, wasn't really much different.
0: Yeah, it's good, interesting.
1: So yeah, I, I guess some some reevaluation has kind of brought that one a little more closer in line for me. Yeah. Um, but as for this new one, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, I just kind of feel like, you know, he's he's too old now. Yeah, he was like in his 30s when they did the first one.
1: Apparently they were, I I believe they were trying to get, um, Tom Selleck to play that part originally.
0: That is correct. That would have been crazy. Yeah, but I think he was, um, busy doing, uh, Magnum P.I. or something. But yeah, that was, uh. Where's he now? Is he even still alive? What's Tom? Yeah, name? he's uh, he's still had a career. He's uh, he was on Friends in the 90s, and then he was um, in Blue Bloods, cop show for the 2000s. But uh, yeah, he's he's still kicking. Yeah, but you're telling me about stuff that was like 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what he's. Uh, I'm sure his IMDb is. It's like
1: you know, remember the 90s?
0: Like, yeah, that was last year. Oh wait, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I know. Uh yeah. do 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 push pineapple, secretary. No. Huh? I will not be pushing your pineapple.